Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Healthcare Conscious Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Juan Clark. I'm a first-year MHA candidate in the Sloan Program in Health Administration at Cornell University. I'm joined today by my other co-host, Jefferson Akers, a second-year student in the Sloan Program. Today we have a very exciting episode planned with our guest speaker, Mr. John Bluford. Spanning for more than four decades, Mr. Bluford has had a very distinguished career in healthcare. He was president and CEO of Truman Medical Centers for 15 years, served as the chairman of the American Hospital Association, served on the board for the National Association of Public Hospitals, and for the Greater Kansas City Chamber of Commerce. In addition, he is president and founder of the Bluford Healthcare Leadership Institute, which is a professional development program that introduces talented minority undergraduate students to healthcare administration. He's been recognized by both Becker's Hospital Review and Modern Healthcare as one of the most influential people in healthcare. He's received many awards for his leadership and service from the American Hospital Association, National Center for Healthcare Leadership, and the Urban League. We have a very engaging conversation today with Mr. Bluford regarding different healthcare trends, executive decision making, and mentorship as well. So make sure that you all stay tuned and thanks for listening. Mr. Bluford, thank you for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you as a guest on the podcast, and we're also very excited to have another special guest as my co-host for the day, Juan Clark. Juan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hey, everyone. My name is Juan Clark. I am a first-year MHA student here at the Sloan Program in Health Administration at Cornell University Representative. Thank you so much for having me, Jefferson. The pleasure is all ours, Juan. As I mentioned, we're very excited to have you and Mr. Buford here with us, and I'll be getting us kicked off with questions for the day. So, Mr. Buford, as you know, there are a lot of factors like value-based care and access expansion that are really challenging the traditional role of hospitals and kind of forcing the evolution of patient care. With that in mind, can you talk about maybe two or three disruptive forces that you believe will reshape care delivery in the hospital setting in the future? Well, thank you for having me on your program. It's, it's quite an honor to visit with you, Jefferson and Juan. And uh, I will try and respond to the questions as you have proposed them. And the question is, what kind of disruptive forces will impact healthcare delivery in hospitals going forward? It's an interesting question in that I think much of the care is not going to happen in hospitals. So I think my first response uh, without much thought, quite frankly, is technology. It just as technology is impacting all other industries, it will impact the healthcare industry uh, as such. And we've seen good evidence of that during the last year and a half with telemedicine really coming to the forefront of the scene and catering and giving people access to care that otherwise would not have had it or made it easier for them to have it. So I think telemedicine and all other types of virtual modalities, uh, some are with us today, and I'm sure there's more to come. But I think my focus, Jefferson and Juan, would be more on things that are happening outside of the hospital and are disruptive to the hospital industry because they're not getting the business. So when we talk about hospitals in home or hospitals at home, I think that is clearly a direction that the, the field is going toward. And I feel that patients will be demanding it more in the near future and the sophistication through technology of what can be administered in one's home is the way to go. There are a lot of benefits to it, obviously. And if you're patient-centered, there's really no question about it. People would rather be home than in a hospital bed if they can. There has been over the last 
five years of my tenure as a hospital executive. And remember, I've been out of the business for eight years in the hospital, uh, a significant transition from inpatient to outpatient. And that is the amount of patient volume going to outpatient activity versus inpatient and admissions and the number of revenues or amount of dollars spent on those two different venues has been significant. When I started the business on a good day, 60% of your revenues on a normal day, 60% of your revenues would be coming from inpatient activity and 40% outpatient. And I was in large major teaching hospitals, which have big outpatient clinics. Today, at best, it's 50-50, and sometimes it's 45 inpatient, 55 outpatient. And I think that trend is going to continue. So that's a big, big change. When you start talking about multi-specialty clinic environments, which many systems are going to now, or micro hospitals, smaller hospitals, perhaps not tertiary in nature, but covering a majority of most chronic disease management, et cetera. That is indeed the wave of the future. The last thing I'll just add to that, you don't think of it in terms of disruption, but I think the pandemic has really brought it to the forefront and that is personnel and the ability to recruit. And I think what's gonna be happening now, it's what I would call perpetual recruitment. And that once you recruit somebody and get them into your organization, you don't stop recruiting them because it's too expensive to lose them and backfill for them. So I think you're gonna see a lot more our flexibility, workplace flexibility, daycare on site for women in the workplace and men, equity and compensation. And I'm not thinking in terms of gender equity, I'm thinking in terms of frontline, first line people. And I think it was clearly demonstrated during the uh, pandemic, their value to the system. Not only do they work hard, but they do hard work and that needs to be remedied. I hope that gives you some insight, at least in my thinking on the, on the question. That was extremely insightful, Mr. Bluefer. And you raised two points that had really resonated with me. I wasn't really privy to how, from a patient centricity standpoint, that's kind of a big driver behind the ambiguity of care delivery settings and the push more towards outpatient care. And then also the notion of consistent recruiting and what we're witnessing real time now with hospitals struggling with staffing shortages and how they may have to readjust their recruiting strategies to not only land employees, but also retain them. That is correct. And I didn't mention international recruitment and that might very well come into play more so than it has in the recent past. I absolutely agree. Uh, so something that you mentioned earlier is that, you know, most of the care that patients are receiving won't actually be in the hospital. Um, so the way that we traditionally kind of viewed the hospitals and the role in their community has changed. So in this current process of them redefining their roles in the community that they serve, what can hospitals do to build a stronger relationship in those communities? Well, that's a, a favorite topic of mine, Juan. You may or may not be aware that some years ago in a major national American Hospital Association investiture meeting, I introduced the concept of thinking outside of the bed and that the hospital logo of the 
blue signs that you see on the highways going into major cities is going to have to be redefined in what a hospital is. And I'd go on to say that you really can't be a community hospital unless you're out in the community. So it really ties into both thinking outside of the bed and the earlier comments I made about going into hospitals in a home and outpatient care and so forth. The other element of that that a lot of people don't typically think about, including some of my colleagues in the business, they talk about being out in the community or wanting to be out in the community without fully recognizing that X percent of their workforce is from the community. You got the community right with inside your four walls if you pay attention to it and you listen to what they have to say. And I've always prided myself in doing a lot of that. And I think my institutions have been better as a result of it. The other thing is that you've got a lot of community agencies that have goodwill in their respective communities like libraries, YMCAs, YWCAs, public school systems, churches, and other community agencies that hospitals need to partner with and engage with and be a part of. And that's another way to be a meaningful partner in the community. And last but not least, I would say partnering with your competitors. Because there's a lot of noise about population health, and there has been for the last 20 years. I don't think we've made the kind of progress that we should have. One, because Hospitals typically don't talk with each other. And constituents in the communities in which they serve often cross each other. And patients go to multiple hospitals oftentimes. And I think if uh, one or two or three hospitals will partner and really concentrate their efforts on a given geographical area or zip code and dwell on what are the issues, morbidity and mortality wise that this community is suffering from, they put their resources together, probably could make a, a quicker and better impact on those respective communities. Wow, uh, no, thank you for that answer. That really was very in-depth. I really liked how you even began with the concept of the fact that most healthcare is outside of the four walls of the hospital. So again, it's in the process, even redefining that, even uh, as you touched to the point earlier that, you know, the split between whether it's 45 or 55 or 40, 60 inpatient versus outpatient, that again is something that's very important. I really also like the fact that you touched on a piece of what we consider cultural competency. And so I think traditionally we've always viewed it as, you know, um, having employees that pretty much look like the people that they serve, but in reality is actually having employees from the community that leaders can actually rely on. So they can get insight from actual members of the community who actually work within their hospital. So again, I really did uh, appreciate that. That, that's that's also true. I'm just thinking and it kind of uh, combines one of your earlier questions about disruptive technologies in the field. And the other thing that brings some of these issues together is interoperability among the computer systems and electronic health record systems in our hospitals. That's another topic that the industry has been talking about for over 20 years. And we haven't scratched the surface on how that should and can work. And when it does work, 
and different systems and different hospitals can talk to each other electronically and share valuable clinical information about the patients they serve, things will move much quicker and much better. Absolutely. And I think, again, that ties into your, your other point of, you know, partnering with your competitors. That's definitely a very uh, different mindset that we probably don't hear too much in healthcare, but I truly believe there's nothing wrong with different approaches if you all have the same goal. You can think about the competitors, but if you're truly patient-centric, competition shouldn't come into play. You should be focused on what's best for the patient that perhaps you're both serving. So it's really not competition in that context if your focus is on improving the health of the community that you serve. Wow. Okay, you know, that that definitely actually kind of leads to my uh, next kind of follow-up question. Um, so kind of just uh, I want to get a little bit more insight on some of the kind of executive decisions that you've made and like your process through that. So I think now more than ever, hospital administrators often have a very difficult time managing their responsibilities of maintaining a budget, advancing goals and metrics, while also prioritizing the needs of the patients that they serve. So in your career as a healthcare administrator, how have you been able to kind of navigate those difficult situations while also keeping the patient on the forefront of your decision making? Well, that's an easy question because if it were not for the patients, you wouldn't be there. So the focus needs to be on them. And the decision-making process is relatively easy from my perspective because that's really all about leadership and the mission of your organization. Now, if the mission of your organization does not include the well-being of patients, then it might be a stretch and a level of difficulty that I'm not aware of. But if indeed it is about the patient, then budgets and metrics and purchasing and technology and buildings, it should all be because of the patient and should be geared toward the patient. So I really haven't had a big problem with that. I think some other institutions do and perhaps some other leadership styles do. I will add that I've always had an affinity towards CEOs who were nurses. They came from a nursing background. They learned or obtained some business acumen, and now they're running those institutions. And I bet, I've done, never done the, the research on it, but anecdotally, I'd say that those institutions have a much stronger affinity toward patient centricity because of the orientation of the nurse. And in large part, I was trained by a lot of nurses and perhaps a little bit of that may have rubbed on, on me. The second thing I will share with you, uh, I became acquainted with uh, a book and the title of the book, you might wanna look it up, is The Patient Comes Second. The Patient Comes Second. And I subscribe to that concept because you take care of your employees, patients do okay. Because the frontline people are the people that are doing the work. We talk about patient-centric. They are patient-centric or not. And uh, I've subscribed to that a lot in my career and I think it served me well. Absolutely. I really like the, the point that you actually brought up about nurses. Um, I think, you know, many people know, especially now during the pandemic, that nurses really are like the backbones of 
the actual hospital. You know, they're the ones that really kind of, you know, keeping the, the heartbeat going. And so to actually, uh, you know, have an affinity towards that, to acknowledge that, I think that is a great, not only just a leadership kind of skill, but also just a good healthcare skill to develop as well. And you see that kind of relationship in academic medical centers in which, you know, they're often ran by clinical personnel as far as doctors and things of that nature. And so you see how kind of there may be a shift towards being more patient-centered than maybe some other type of institution. So um, I did like that. And I will most definitely actually read that book, The Patient Comes Second. You know, you often don't hear that that too much, but again, a different perspective, but it really kind of like, uh, you know, hones in. I I, I'd be interested in knowing your take from it. Uh, you probably have a different perspective. Many people like it, some others not so much. It's an easy read. So take a look at it, let me know what you think. Mr. Blueford, as you know, health administration is a very relationship-driven business and you never accomplish anything on your own. And with that in mind, can you talk more about the collaborative aspects of executive decision-making that you experienced when you reached the C-suite? Yeah, I can, Jefferson. I've always had a participatory style of management. The top-down management uh, doesn't get you too far for too long. And in fact, if it's not bottom up in terms of the institution, you're not going to do well either because the people in contact with the public and the patients really make the difference. So culturally, you really have to indoctrinate uh, the entire organization and have it come bottom up and it's a much stronger product or much stronger culture as a result of it, as opposed to top down. I have always taken input from everyone, patients, community members, entry-level position, physicians, and everybody else in between. And that's part of what I call a participatory style because I create an environment where people feel comfortable in talking with me and giving me the real deal. Because if you don't have the real deal, you're not gonna make as much difference as you'd like. And I was fortunate in coming into the business as an evening and night administrator. And I will tell you that hospitals are very different at night and in the evenings when uh, all the hot shots are no longer there. So I really learned about managing a hospital management by walking around and talking with folks. And I would take time, I wouldn't say every day, but several days a week. Well, that was literally on my, my calendar, get up, get out of the office and go see what's going on in the hospital and talk to people. And what you find and learn is just fascinating. Uh, it also gave me a sense of the metabolism of the hospital. What's the rate and the pace of things happening? What, what mandates have been given two weeks earlier and are still lingering or not in place? Uh, what's the communication flow? The staff on the front lines know what was discussed in the managerial meeting two days earlier. If not, I've got a problem with that because communication is the lifeline of the institution. Uh, if you don't have strong first line employees and middle management, you've got a problem organization because that's the face of the organization. So you need to treat it as such. They're very important. The last thing is simply one of the most important things the head of an organization does is fire and hire. And you start, it's all about recruitment. You're not in the final four if you don't recruit well on the front end. 
right, Jefferson? Uh, so that's that's your your starting off point. And the other thing is, occasionally those great hires just don't work out for whatever reasons, and you've got to identify that quickly, learn from it, cut it loose, and move on, and hope that the person that is leaving the organization does well in their next endeavor. That's been my approach. So hire and fire uh, thoughtfully, spend a lot of time on that. If you make a mistake, make the adjustment and move on and uh, get the input from uh, all constituents in the organization, including patients. Mr. Buford, in the different components of the answer you just gave, I think you did a great job of demonstrating what you had referred to as the corporate athlete and kind of being willing to be nimble and adjust and delegate based on what the situation entails and how you've been able to personally apply that throughout the course of your career. What I want to transition into talking about next is leadership. And when you spoke at Colloquia, Mr. Bluford, you had mentioned the importance of aspiring young leaders developing an executive presence. So my question is two parts. Can you first share your definition of executive presence and then also, can you elaborate on how you would advise young professionals to develop their executive presence? Well, I would say executive presence, and by the phrase, we mean something that's visualized. Executive presence to me means someone coming into the room that exudes confidence. Someone that has composure, particularly under pressure, and a clarity of thought. That is, you can ask a question and you can get a response that is well thought out and that is communicated clearly. You might agree with it or disagree with it. That's not the point, but you understand it. And then beyond that, you kind of start looking at a parent and a tire. Does the person look the part for the position that they are pursuing? That's very important. And the other thing I like to say, you know, you, you can't lead if you don't have followers. So the question is, can I envision this person uh, exuding the confidence that would attract people to follow her or his lead? The other things, the next tranche or next cut, are communication skills in general both written and oral. And as I may have said at, at your earlier program, Jefferson, if you can't communicate what you know, it won't serve you well. So communication is a key. And the other thing that I may or may not have mentioned, particularly those who are entering C-suite environments and they're interfacing with boards of directors, learning Robert's rules of order is a good, good lesson to have because ultimately you'll be in, in environments where business is being conducted under those rules. And if you don't know those rules, you won't be able to play effectively and get your messages across. So those are some of the components of executive presence that I look for. Understood. So it almost seems like there are three components from my understanding. The first is internally making sure that you can have enough confidence to inspire those to follow you, then externally, how you communicate and treat others. And then last, but certainly not least, there's the component of your skills and competencies, making sure 
that you're able to navigate uncertainty and delegate tasks appropriately. I think you summed it up real nicely. I have to remember that, Jefferson. I definitely would agree with myself, you know, but I think uh, over my my years in, in our communication that we've had, I think, you know, you always kind of expressed that, you know, executive presence is a kind of a, a multifactorial, but one tier that actually makes a leader. And so, you know, over your kind of dynamic career and, you know, your many C-suite positions, your awards, well, your different involvements and things on that nature. If there were maybe two to three kind of things that you could maybe share with our followers that you've learned or you wish you had known throughout your career, what would they be? Well, one of them clearly, and I remember very distinctly in the early 90s when uh, I was really beginning to make a steep climb up the organizational ladders and, and had uh, input and impact. And that is refining my listening skills, learning how to listen and being attentive and aware that you get a lot more and you learn a lot more when you listen versus when you talk. And I worked on that and it served me well. That's one. The other is being better at reading both verbal and nonverbal cues and where people are on any given matter. And that's a little bit of a skill that uh, is nurtured and I think I'm fairly good at it, I hope I am. And the last thing, which I probably still need to work on is patience. And particularly as a, a young administrator coming up the ranks, things never move as fast as you'd like them to. And I think a recognition that patience is a virtue is a good thing to have, uh, but don't let it quell your enthusiasm, but sometimes it plays well. So I think the technical skills, some level of intellectual capacity is important that probably got you to where you are today, but eventually it's gonna be about emotional intelligence your self-awareness, knowing your strengths and weaknesses, building relationships, very key. And uh, the proper socialization in time and place. So you might be at the office Christmas party, but that's not the same as your fraternity smoker. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, you gentlemen are laughing, and I see you, the audience doesn't, but uh, you'd be amazed at how many people don't understand that initially, and a lot of um, promotions are lost at professional social events, believe me. So, I, I, you know, I think a key is, as a leader, you're always on the clock. There's no downtime. If, if you're out in the public, you're on the clock. And so keep that in mind. And that really ties into uh, my favorite quote, and that is everything matters. So just be conscious of that. That would be my advice to young, aspiring, talented, up and coming executives. And the people or young people that don't make it to where they think they ought to be, it's not their intellectual capacity, generally speaking. It's these other things. 
Those were uh, great points. And I really like how, again, that kind of ties in the concept of a corporate athlete. Because if you think about it, what athletes do on the court is just as important as what they do off the court. So that's very synonymous with your concept of you're always on the clock. So, you know, as a leader, as we're, you know, younger, we're developing, we always have to keep those things kind of in mind. Um, and also another point that I really wanted to make is that I really liked how you really honed in kind of on the that emotional intelligence. I think technical skills, you know, they really make you an expert in your field. But in healthcare, we serve people. We're a business of people. So if you don't have those people skills or those transferable skills and things on that nature that don't, uh, that aren't able to be transferred throughout your leadership or even your career, then uh, as you said, I think that, you know, we'll, you'll somewhat will reach a, a cap a lot quicker than they'll be able to climb that ladder. So I uh, definitely appreciate your perspective on that. Yeah, and, and I can guarantee you for a number of reasons, you gentlemen and others like you will have that skill set tested just because. And the, the key is don't get upset and react immediately, address it appropriately. If it's fake flagrant, then be sure and address it. Uh, but it might not be at that moment at that time. It just depends. Mr. Bluefer, to wrap up our conversation, I uh, want to switch gears and focus a bit on mentorship. So with your role with the Bluefer Healthcare Leadership Institute, you've been able to play a really integral role in the development of many upcoming healthcare executives. From your standpoint, what have been some of the most rewarding aspects of serving as a mentor in such a large capacity? Oh boy, it's it's been an honor and a pleasure and a godsend for me to be in a position to mentor and have such talented young people uh, in front of me that go on and and do great things. I get a lot of pleasure in seeing the growth of people that I've touched and their successes going forward. And it's kind of about sending the elevator back down, uh, sharing some of the, the benefits that I've had and some things to do, some things not to do uh, so that they can continue my life's work, which is catering to uh, vulnerable patient populations uh, in play long after I'm gone, I hope. So um, it's very meaningful to me. I, you know, I've been doing this role full-time for the last eight years, almost 10. I was still employed, but I was starting to get into this 501c3 company. And uh, before that, I did a lot of mentoring with graduate students such as yourself doing their internships or, or fellowships. And I always found that I learned as much as I, I taught from young people such as yourselves. And I'm hopeful that what I taught carries them further than I've gotten. And that at some point in time, they reach back and send that elevator back down. Point well taken on the each one teach one nature of mentorship. But I also want to circle back on something you mentioned that you want your mentees to be able to kind of carry on your life's work of serving vulnerable patient populations. I think a lot of times that aspect of mentorship in terms of the goal alignment is often overlooked in favor of skill development or networking. But a lot of times we should be more mindful of having a similar goal, whether we're a mentee or a mentor and working towards that. That's right. Chewing gum and walking at the same time. We can do this. Uh, so just kind of for a reference for our followers who are listening, I actually met Mrs. Woofer when I was a freshman 
uh, at Morehouse College. So uh, quite a couple of years back, and he's been very instrumental in my own career development as well as trajectory. And so I'm very fortunate to call you not only a mentor, but I would say a sponsor as well. So I wanted to ask from your perspective, you could maybe define for our followers what mentorship and sponsorship means to you. And to follow up from that, uh, could you maybe also talk about how a lot of young leaders and professionals can go about soliciting mentors or sponsors throughout their career? Yeah, that that's a lot there. And uh, my concept and definition of mentorship could be very different than others. But I think in generally mentors help the mentee grow professionally. And a mentor should be a confidant. It should, a mentor should be an advocate on your behalf, and he should he or she should also be critical of you when necessary and as appropriate. Otherwise, uh, you're not getting the full benefit of that mentorship. The sponsorship is a notch above. You've gone through the mentorship program, and now you're ready to, to cash in on that growth and that learning curve that you benefited from. And the sponsor can help that development by opening doors and uh, creating opportunities and serving as a reference. And uh, I really like my personal growth from mentorship to sponsorship because the rubber meets the road in sponsorship. The rubber meets the road in sponsorship. I get a lot of satisfaction at seeing win-win uh, situations prevail, where the mentee does well in the organization and the organization is happy to have that mentee with them. Uh, I hope that answers your question. And I, I will tell you, I don't know whether you would call it mentorship or not, but you can learn just as much from those leaders in the organization who do not perform well. And by that, I mean, you can learn what not to do. And many times that is as as valuable as learning what to do. Well, that uh, absolutely did answer my question. And I think that plays a large part when you think about just how you develop yourself as a leader. It's never really linear. Therefore, you have to kind of have people to kind of different perspectives or they've been through different situations and things on that. And that really provides a very comprehensive type of experience that then can help in your development more than just just to one kind of siloed way. So I, I really like how uh, you kind of shape that just a, just a tad bit. Um, so that actually does conclude the question that we have today, but just as a small follow-up question, I know you are a big jazz fan. Uh, you know, I, I know that's definitely been one of your passions over the years. So I have to ask, who's your favorite jazz artist? Oh, I, I have many, but uh, I'm sitting in a room with a nice photograph of John Coltrane. And uh, it's a picture of a, a US stamp, it's blown up. And the Postmaster General of Kansas City delivered that to my office as a gift, and I cherish that, that gift. But I have many, many uh, jazz players that I follow, old school, and my wife and I travel all over the world to jazz festivals from Copenhagen to Switzerland to Canada, you name it. We've been stymied the last year and a half because of the COVID situation. So. Uh, Hopefully we can resume that within the next year or so. I would hope so as well. 
Oh, well, so on behalf of the Health Conscious Podcast, we truly want to thank you, Mr. Bluford, for such a meaningful conversation today. I, I truly think that our, our followers would get a lot out of the, the conversation we had today. And as always, thank you to all of our listeners as well. Uh, make sure that you all subscribe if you enjoyed the episode. Oh, oh good. Juan and, and Jefferson, thank you for having me.